0: hello gentle listeners we wanted to hold on something's wrong
1: yeah that's better
0: hey and welcome to this episode of the dear world love history podcast
1: where the history is wacky and so are we
0: you're hanging out with the outlandish historians adrian
1: and renee So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's
0: kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History podcast. On this episode, we're going to be tackling the final installment in our Titanic miniseries. That's right, we've reached the end of our Titanic story. In part three... We left off at the sinking. It is 2.20 a.m. The Titanic is now making her way to the bottom of the Atlantic. Before we get into more sadness, we're going to pop on over and visit with the Carpathia. All right. So in the last episode, we mentioned on the Carpathia that passengers were kept in their cabins. Stewards were told, you know, not to let them know that anything's going on, just to keep everything calm so that they're not getting underfoot. The passengers, that is, not the Stewards. So what happens is there's this one passenger, Louis Ogden. His wife woke him up in the middle of the night because she was feeling a little bit chilly. Because remember, they turned off all the heat to the accommodations in order to send all of that steam down to the boilers and the engines. So she's cold. She wakes up her husband. She goes, you know, go out. Go see what's going on. So he goes out. He finds a steward. And the steward is like, everything is fine. Just go back to your room. And he's like, no, I think something's wrong. And the steward goes, no, no, everything's fine. There's been an accident. It's not our ship. Go back to your cabin. He goes back to his cabin, goes up to his wife, and he goes, the ship is on fire. We have to go up to the deck. How he came to this conclusion, we have no freaking clue. But unlike the Titanic, where they're being told, you know, dress warmly, put on your life belt, get up to the deck. They're like, you know, we don't realize that something is wrong. Lewis Ogden is told, everything is fine go back to your room, go back to sleep, bundle up, you know, you'll be warm in your room. He comes back and goes, the ship's on fire, let's get to the deck. So they get up to the deck, they manage to get up there, there's a whole bunch of other passengers that also make their way up to the deck, and then they convene with one another. And eventually they get the news from um, crew that they're going to the aid of the Titanic. And they're standing there going, "Mm, no, we think you're telling us a lie, because that's not possible, the Titanic Cannot be in trouble. This is a new ship. It's her maiden voyage. She's supposed to be, you know, strong as anything. Eventually, you know, they come to the conclusion that they're being told the truth. Now, my opinion is had Lewis Ogden been on the Titanic and they knocked on his door and said, Excuse me, sir, put on your lifebelt, dress warmly, get up to the deck, I think before they even finished, this man would have been sitting in a lifeboat. In fact, I wouldn't put it past him to have dropped the lifeboat on his own and rowed out into the middle of the Atlantic just to get to safety. If he remembered his wife in that scenario, uh, I don't know. Probably, you know, since he went back to tell her that things were on fire when they weren't. Yeah, but considering how quickly he'd be running to the lifeboats, who knows. Right? She's still standing there on the deck going, um, excuse me, Lewis, darling, you forgot something. Me! So, yeah, we just wanted to share that funny story with you because, honestly, when I read it, I just started laughing. This, they're being told everything is fine, and his conclusion is the ship is on fire. In the middle of the ocean, the ship is on fire. So, that story done. We are going to pop on over to the Californian.
1: The Californian has stopped for the night, and it is sitting 10 miles away from where the Titanic was last located. Now, we're going to join 2nd Officer Stone and Apprentice Officer Gibson at 2 a.m., 20 minutes before the Titanic sank. Now, they're on watch, and they are... They are seeing this ship out in the distance that they don't know is the Titanic, that they don't realize is in distress. And they think, hey, this ship's disappearing. That's kind of odd. So Stone sends Gibson down to Lord at 2 a.m. to tell Lord, hey, they fired eight rockets. Were there any colors? He asked. Were they all white? To which Gibson says, yes, sir. They were all white. At that point, Lord, great Lord, he's wonderful he went back to sleep. That's, that's what he's doing during this entire thing. Gibson went back to watch, and at 2.20, Stone and Gibson, they thought they could make out the ship for a second, and then it just disappeared entirely. So without even realizing it, they had watched the Titanic sink and disappear from the world. So now it's 2.40 in the morning. Alright, so they haven't seen any more lights, they haven't seen anything, no more rockets, nothing. Stone then calls down to Lord, waking him up once again to say, this ship in the distance, it's gone, it's completely gone. Lord says, okay, cool. Again, he asks about the rockets, were they white? Yeah, yeah man, they were white! Okay, log it. He tells Stone to log it, and that's that, he goes back to sleep. He has a habit, this guy, sleeping. And now it is 3.30 in the morning. Now imagine, all the Titanic passengers that are in lifeboats, they're waiting this entire time, okay? And now Stone and Gibson see more rockets being fired. However, this time, they realize, nope, those are company signals because they weren't white. So they were like, huh, interesting. And they also noticed that these rockets were further away From the white rockets that they had seen earlier. But do you know what they did? I'll tell you. Nothing. They didn't tell Lord. They didn't do anything. And that was that.
0: Alright, so we are heading back out into the Atlantic with our Titanic passengers. At 2.20 a.m. on April 15th, the Titanic sank. Passengers are now in the water. Passengers are in the lifeboats. You know, the people in the lifeboats are trying to reconcile what the hell they just witnessed, what the hell they just went through. People in the water are trying to survive. So the sea is calm, as if the Titanic had never been there. The only thing in the water are the people who went down with the ship. The people in the lifeboats can hear them screaming and crying out for help, for salvation. But those cries would haunt most of the people in the lifeboats for the rest of their lives. The water is freezing it's 28 degrees and at temperatures that low the human body can't take it so people were dying of heart attacks or their bodies were simply shutting down. But the blessing in that case was most of them were unconscious by that point anyway. So within 20 minutes at most most of the people in the water were dead. By 3 in the morning it was completely silent. Before the ship went down, Captain Smith had ordered his men in the lifeboats to come back and pick up passengers. Unfortunately for Captain Smith, he could not foresee the fact that most of those lifeboats never turned back.
1: Rhoda Abbott, who we actually met in a previous episode, was the only female passenger who survived being on the Titanic when it sank. She was the only one who was plucked from the water and lived. Rhoda claimed that when she was underwater and the Titanic sank, that one of the boilers exploded and warmed the water around her as well as blew her free of the sinking. Now, we don't know if this is true. The only thing we do know is that she made it to collapsible A and she was pulled in and she also lost both of her sons. Now, Rhoda, while she was on the Titanic, she had the opportunity to get into one of the lifeboats. And when her eldest son, when she realized that he wouldn't be given a spot because of his age, she decided to stay back with her sons just so she could have a few more minutes with them. And
0: in regards to the boiler blowing up, all of the evidence that we have that we've read says that the boilers did not blow up. So I guess we're taking Rhoda's story with a grain of salt.
1: Yeah, I mean there was something that I read that what could have caused it cuz cause she did say like she did say that like you know her legs got a little bit burned. It was nothing incredibly severe. But one of the things that I read was that it might have actually been the water rushing in through the ventilators that just pushed all that warm water out
0: of the ship. Right, and it was the ventilators that pushed light toler free. That is a possibility if not An exploding boiler. In regards to people
1: being pulled out of the water, we have 5th Officer Lowe, who is in lifeboat number 14. Now, he really took charge. He was able to string together lifeboats 10, 12, 4, and collapsible D. And then he started playing musical chairs. So he started shifting people out of his lifeboat, which was almost at capacity, into the other lifeboats. He was trying to get able oarsmen into his lifeboat because. He wanted to go back. Now, the issue is that he miscalculated how much time it would take to situate everybody in two new lifeboats, and also how long it would take for the people to thin out in the water, because he he didn't want the lifeboat to, you know, capsize because everybody's trying to get in. So he had to wait. So it wasn't about until an hour after the Titanic sank at about 3.30 in the morning that Officer Lowe was able to take his lifeboat and go back in search of survivors. Now, he was chasing ghosts because there like, he would hear people like, help, help, and they would be looking for survivors in the dark because where they would go, they only came across... You know, just people who were already dead. And that's how the entire night went for him. Everywhere he went, it just, there was no one there. They were able to pluck nine people out of the water, and that was it.
0: All right, so now we're going to head over to the other lifeboats. All right, so they're all sitting out there. You know, it's the middle of the night. It's freezing cold. And then the officers and the seamen in the, the lifeboats in uh, some of them, they kind of start polling the people in the boats. Do you want to go back? Uh, show of hands. How many of you want to go back for people that are dying in the ocean? No? No one wants to go back? All right, cool. We'll just sit here. So 3rd Officer Pittman put this to a vote and was like, oh, actually, 3rd Officer Pittman did not put it to a vote. 3rd Officer Pittman was like, everybody grab an oar, we're going back. And he got a lot of pushback from the people in his lifeboat. So they ended up staying put. In lifeboat number two, Officer Boxhall did put it to a vote. How many of you want to go back? Ladies, anybody want to go back? And they were like, no, 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 no. We're just going to get swamped. It's a bad idea. And lifeboat two was about 60% full. While lifeboat five, which is third officer Pittman's lifeboat, had 40 people in the boat with room for 65 in total.
1: So Mrs. Washington Dodge was in Pittman's boat, lifeboat number five. Now, she was one of the people that did want to go back. However, she was so pissed off with the people in her lifeboat that when lifeboat seven was drifting nearby, she actually transferred boats because she couldn't even stand to be sitting in the same area as people who just, they, they didn't value anyone else's lives but their own. So she pretty much said, fuck you,
0: I'm going over here. Then came lifeboat number six, which Quartermaster Hitchens, our most favorite man of the night, aside from Captain Lord. Yeah, I was about to say, he's my second favorite person. <laughs> was in charge. And he did not put it to a vote. There was no vote on boat six. He was like, yeah, no, we're not going anywhere. Now, the women of boat number six, and this included Margaret Brown, were like, yeah, no, we want to go back because um, there's a lot of people out there and they need to be saved and we need to go help them. And they argued back and forth with Hitchens and eventually he overrode them and was like, yeah, no, shut up. We're staying here. So lifeboat number six had 28 people in it, capacity of 65. Then in number one, the fireman was like, hey, we have to go back. And everyone in the boat was like, no, 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 no. And this is the boat that had 12 people in it and it could fit 40. So they stayed put. And this kept going, you know, in each each lifeboat. Um, lifeboat number four did pick up some additional people from the water, but this wasn't because they turned around and went back. It was because people were just closer to the lifeboat. So as they were rowing by or people made their way to the lifeboat, they pulled them in and they pulled eight people from the water into lifeboat number four. Over 2,000 people were on the Titanic when she left Queenstown in Ireland. 1,500 people went into the water. And only 700 plus were saved that night. So now they had nothing to do but sit, wait, and hope that help was coming. Because they had absolutely no idea that the Carpathia was on her way. The only ones aware of that were Phillips, who's dead, Bride, and Captain Smith. Captain Smith is also gone. Harold Bride made it to collapsible B. So they're terrified they're going to starve to death. They're going to freeze to death or that the lifeboats are going to drift all apart from one another and that they're just going to be these lost little islands out at sea. Remember, there are also children in those lifeboats. Edith Rosenbaum-Russell, who, remember, made it into the lifeboat with her little toy musical pig, which seems like a really silly thing, but it was her good luck charm. So she actually kept the kids calm in her lifeboat by winding up the tail of her musical pig and playing the music for them. The lifeboats
1: are now just drifting apart from one another over about 4 to 5 miles apart. So as some lifeboats were nearby, people started tying themselves together such as lifeboat 5 and 7, which is how Mrs. Washington Dodge was able to transfer lifeboats to pass the time. Fourth Officer Boxhall had flares in his lifeboat and he started firing them off. Now because everyone was so far apart, there were people who thought that these flares were signals from a rescue ship that was
0: on their way. Yeah. And he was firing those flares in the hopes that there was a ship on its way. So that way, you know, they'd spot the flares and know, ah, okay, that's the position. That's where we need to get to. That's where people are. All right. So number six, lifeboat number six was not having an easy time of it this night. So it got to the point where the women were so fed up that you know, they basically told Hitchens and Arthur Puchin to shut up because they had both decided that the end was nigh. All right. Hitchens was like, that's it. We're doomed. Puchin was no better. So Margaret Brown told Arthur Puchin to shut up and just keep rowing because she wasn't having any of it anymore. And this was a boat full of strong women because Margaret Brown was in there. Helen Candy was there, as were two English suffragettes, Elsie Bowerman and her mother, edith chibnall now they were also members of sylvia pankhurst's women's social and political union so they took control of the boat they started rowing to keep warm to keep busy whatever the reason was and you know quartermaster hitchens was no longer the person in charge of this boat now eventually
1: as was the case with lifeboat five and seven lifeboat number 16 drifted nearby they tied themselves together to lifeboat six and all was dandy. Now, Margaret Brown, now being in charge, was like, yeah, no, now we're gonna cut like, loose from one another, so we can row to keep warm. This is where Hitchens was like, uh, no, 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 this is not happening, this is not a thing, to which Margaret Brown told him to shut the fuck up, sit down,
0: otherwise she was gonna throw him overboard. Over on Collapsible B, it's a very anxious situation the entire night because they're all standing on the collapsible, and Light Toller is basically directing them in which way to stand, to lean throughout the entire night to make sure that B does not capsize and they don't go, you know, into the water. Now, one of the most difficult things, aside from standing on a sinking collapsible, that, you know, the water is up to their ankles, is hearing and seeing men just collapse and fall into the water because their bodies gave out and they couldn't take it anymore. Um, And Harold Bride, as I mentioned earlier, was one of the men that was pulled onto collapsible B. So he shared the news with Toller that Captain Smith knew before the Titanic went down, that the Carpathia, the Baltic, and the Olympic were on their way. Now, in collapsible A,
1: the one that Rhoda Abbott was pulled into, We also have Norris Williams, the tennis player. So they are standing in knee-deep water. At one point, they tried to pull up the sides, but they were broken, and that just caused lots of badness. So they were like, you know what, we're leaving these sides alone, and we're just going to stand here and pray that someone's coming.
0: And once Harold Bride had relayed that information to Toller, just to hop back to B real quick... Um, You know, he passed it around to all the other men on the boat just to keep their spirits up, you know, keep them hopeful so that they know they have something to live for. And he figured that, you know, it would be around the time the sun was rising that the Carpathia would arrive because Harold Bright had relayed how far the Carpathia was from them, which was actually the closest ship out of the three coming to their rescue. Also, as the night wore on, the wind grew worse, you know, it became chillier, the wind picked up, the, weight, the sea became choppier, it started, you know, little waves, and again, collapsible B is sinking little by little. So as the night is wearing on, or the early morning, really, you know, that water is at their ankles, and then it's rising up their shins, and, you know, it's very worrisome, to put it lightly, to be standing on that collapsible knowing that at any moment, they could all end up in the Atlantic. And fortunately,
1: everybody's hope did pay off at 3.30 in the morning. The passengers saw a flash of light. Now, if you recall what I said a little bit earlier with the Californian, at 3.30, they saw company signals, meaning there was help on the way, and they were almost there.
0: So the Carpathia is on her way to the Titanic's position, as is the Baltic. Now, since the Carpathia arrived before the Baltic, she was able to send a message to the Baltic and let them know, you know, we're here, we're picking up passengers. So the Baltic never went to the position of the Titanic where she was sinking. The Baltic actually turned back around and went back on her own course. During all of this, Captain Rostrin actually kept a really great log of all the things that he was doing because he figured that, you know, eventually once this whole thing was over, he would need to present, you know, every step, every action that he took to get to the Titanic and rescue her passengers. Even though the Carpathia was smaller than the Titanic, she could still carry up to 2,500 passengers. Um, for ca- That's full capacity. But at that time, the Carpathia only had 743 passengers on board, which was perfect for picking up Titanic survivors. And as we mentioned in the previous episode, Rostron actually ordered his crew to give up their cabins. The first person to give up his cabin was Captain Rostron for Titanic survivors. And eventually they could actually spot the flares that Boxhall was sending up from his lifeboat, but. Because of the conditions of the night, because it was so clear, it actually seemed like the flare was a lot closer than it was. So Rostron thought, like, oh, yay, you know, the Titanic is still afloat. You know, he'd end up discovering much later that not the case. Now, because the night is so clear, that's actually great for the Carpathia because she was steaming straight into the same ice field that the Titanic got caught in. And they were able to spot those icebergs because of the clear visibility and because of the extra lookouts Rostron had posted. Now, the Carpathian never lost speed. She was still going full speed into the ice field, knowing full well that this was what was going to happen. And they, like pros, maneuvered their way through this ice field, avoiding icebergs going around them when need be, never once slowing down. At 2.45, Rostron gave the order to fire company rockets every 15 minutes until they reached the Titanic's position because he knew that there were people out there, they were waiting for rescue to come, and he wanted to give them hope and to alert them to the fact that yes, help is on the way, help is coming. Now, the closer they got to the Titanic's position, the more Rostrum began to worry that you know things are not as kosher as he believes them to be, that the Titanic, he felt in his heart had actually foundered already, um, especially since it had been two hours since they last heard from the Titanic's operators. At 3.50, Rostron rang down to the engine room, told them to stand by. At four o'clock, he ordered all stop. They had arrived at the Titanic location, and his fears were confirmed. The Titanic was gone. There was absolutely
1: no debris there were no lifeboats, there were no bodies, there was nothing to even say that yes, the Titanic had at one point been at this position. And this is also when he knew that those flares, they weren't coming from the Titanic. They were coming from the passengers in the lifeboats. So he ordered his engines to slow ahead and he started making his way towards wherever the flares were coming from. Now, because of the rockets that the Carpathia was firing, the passengers, they had hope there was someone coming. When it became more apparent what that white flash was, that they were in fact rockets, people started setting their hats on fire, like their straw hats, their handkerchiefs, newspapers, anything and everything that they could use to get the attention of this rescue ship. Since the flares were coming from lifeboat number two, that was the first lifeboat that the Carpathia did reach. So that was Boxhall as well as 24 other passengers. And as we mentioned earlier, the ocean is starting to become choppy, so the Carpathia had to find a way to shelter the people in the lifeboat from the choppy sea while picking them up safely. Now, the Carpathia did almost hit an iceberg, but they were able to avoid it. And Roshan told some of his men to go down to the gangway and guide the lifeboat in safely, since 4th Officer Boxhall was the only seaman in the boat. Elizabeth Allen at 410 in the morning, was the first passenger to step foot on the Carpathia, and Boxhall was the last from his lifeboat. Now, as soon as Boxhall was on the Carpathia, he had to immediately go to Captain Rostran, to which he asked, you know, is the Titanic really gone? And Boxhall was heartbroken, absolutely devastated. You know, he said, yes, the Titanic sank. There were hundreds, you know, if not a thousand, maybe even more passengers that were in the water and they were all gone. Realizing that, you know, these passengers have been in the water for hours, Rasha knew that he needed to move as quickly as possible to get everyone on board safely. And as they were working, you know, the morning light revealed to them that while, yes, they knew they were in an ice field, they saw just how many icebergs and growlers they were surrounded by. It was kind of like a holy shit moment because they were just everywhere. One wrong turn and the Carpathia could have been damaged.
0: So while uh, the lifeboats are making their way to the Carpathia, 5th Officer Lowe, remember, in charge of Lifeboat 14, went back, picked up more passengers from the water. He decided he was going to hoist the sail on his lifeboat. Screw the oars, were hoisting the sail, and they were going to sail into the Carpathia's side. Now, as he was doing this, and as they started getting underway, he saw collapsible D was sitting, you know, a bit ways off, and that they were sitting a bit too low in the water, they were having a hard time of it, so he brought boat 14 over and Collapsible D started freaking out when Lighttoler came over. They were like, no, no, no. We've got way too many passengers. We're not doing well as it is. We can't take more. And Lighttoler was like, uh, yeah, no, I don't want to put passengers in your boat. I want to tie your boat to my boat, and I'm going to tow you in to the Carpathia. So he tied Collapsible D to boat 14 and started towing Collapsible D towards the Carpathia. On their way over, he also saw Collapsible A, which, you know, is sitting there half-submerged in the Atlantic Ocean, people inside of it freezing to death. So he made his way over and he pulled passengers out of collapsible D, Rhoda Abbott being one of them. So during the night, at least half of the people in collapsible A had died. There were only 13 left. With that done, Lowe made his way towards the Carpathia. The furthest lifeboat away from the Carpathia was collapsible B. And that's where Light Toller was. That's where they were all standing there throughout the entire night, trying not to fall into the water. Because the ocean was starting to become so choppy, there was danger that the boat would capsize. So Light Toller started blowing his whistle, especially since, you know, help had arrived. Hearing this, Boat 4 and Boat 12 made their way to Collapsible B to get people off of there. So the men had to be so, so careful when leaving the Collapsible to get into another lifeboat, Otherwise, it could turn over and everyone else would be thrown into the Atlantic. So about four or five men went into boat four and the rest got into boat 12. Now, Harold Bride, poor Harold Bride, would end up a victim of frostbite to his feet for weeks after this. Uh, According to Baker Jockin, he just swam on over. To one of the lifeboats and was pulled in from the water. His account is that he was in the water the entire time after the sinking. He never once got in a lifeboat, and that's due to the fact that he drank alcohol before going into the ocean. Not true, because alcohol actually makes hypothermia set in faster, but that's his account that he was in the water the entire time. Unrealistic, but fine, he can have his moment. So Light Toller was the last one off Collapsible B. He ended up taking the body of one of the dead men into boat 12 with him. Once in boat 12, he took command and they made their way to the Carpathia. Um, in total, it took about four hours to get people up to the Carpathia and the lifeboats and get them out of the lifeboats and onto the Carpathia. Once on the Carpathia, then people could start to warm up. But more importantly, for those who lost loved ones, there was a frantic search on board for their husbands, for their sons, in the hopes that they could be reunited, that maybe, just maybe, they were in another lifeboat. As you can
1: imagine, in many of these instances, it was not a happy ending. You know, we know that 1,500 people went into the water and almost all of them died. But there were a few happy instances, one of which was... Mrs. Washington Dodge, she was, in fact, reunited with her husband. She had gotten into a lifeboat, and he had remained on board as men were not allowed. However, later on, they needed another man in the boat, and they said, you, get in. So Washington Dodge was able to get into a lifeboat and survive. Then there was Billy Carter, and I think this is actually one of my favorite stories, so he was able to get into collapsible sea way later on and now he's already on the carpathia and he's you know he's looking out he's like oh my god where's my family where's my family and you know he sees he sees his wife he sees his daughter and then it's i'm sure he flashed like hot and cold because he's like where is my son where is he god i love this kid you know, he takes off the hat, the women's hat that he's wearing, and he's like, here I am, father. So luckily for Billy Carter, his all of his family survived. Then, happy yet slightly sad, there is Marianne Thayer, who was in a lifeboat, and we know that her son, Jack, he did jump into the water. He had survived when his friend hadn't. They were reunited on the Carpathia, and then it was the heartbreaking moment of, where is my father? And unfortunately, John Thayer did not survive. And probably the most heartbreaking story of all, and forgive me if I start crying, so there was an Italian woman in the third class, and she's on the Carpathia, and she's screaming, Bambino, Bambino. And eventually they figured out, oh, okay, like, she's looking for her child. And they found her child, and they gave her to her. And the woman only started to cry even harder, because then she started screaming to Bambino. She had two kids. And they later found out that her other child was, they. she was picked up from the water, but she was currently defrosting on the hot press, and... It's a very weird way of putting it, but unfortunately, the child had frozen to death. They were frozen and they needed to thaw out. So at 8:15, pretty much all the lifeboats were had been picked up of passengers except for lifeboat number 12, which was light toller's boat. It was moving incredibly slow because light toller really wasn't going to take any risks as the capacity was 65, but this boat had 74 people in it. He needed to make sure that in these choppy waters that no like there was no risk for capsizing. Seeing this, Rostron, you know, he called down to the engine room and he asked them to start it back up and he started making his way towards lifeboat 12. And the way that Rostron pulled up was very similar to how he had done before with Boxhall, making sure that he was protecting Toller and the passengers from the rough sea. So it was about 8.30 when, you know, they were side by side and passengers were being hauled up into the Carpathia. Now, 1st Officer Horace Dean of the Carpathia, you know, he's looking over the railing and he calls down to Lightoller. he calls him Lights, and he Making a little bit lighter of the situation, you know, saying, "Hey, hey, what are you doing down there, man?" And now this is because Dean and Light Toller are best friends. Now, Dean had been the best man at Light Toller's wedding, so that I'm sure Dean was kind of like, "Oh my God, my friend is on this sinking ship," and now he can finally relax for a moment, be like, oh, "Thank God he is okay," because I. I'm sure part of what was going through his head was, how do I tell his wife if Light Toller didn't make it? And in fine fashion, Light Toller was the last passenger, crew member, person, whoever, to step foot on the Carpathia, and he was the most senior officer to survive the sinking. Now it's 9 a.m., and thankfully, all of the passengers, all of the crew, are now on the Carpathia. There is no one left out in the water.
0: Now it's decision time for rostering. He's like, okay, I've got all these people from the Titanic. Yay. We didn't lose a passenger. No one was injured being brought onto the Carpathia. You know, bonus points. What the heck do I do with them now? There are two options. One, he turns the Carpathia back around and goes back on his route towards Europe. Two, he keeps going in the direction that he was going to New York. That ended up being the choice that he made, because you know they took stock, they took inventory, and they were like, "Okay, we don't have enough food on here for all of these passengers to make it to Italy, so we are going to New York once all the passengers and crew were on board, the Carpathias crew took a tally, you know, they wrote down people's names, they counted it all up, seven hundred and five passengers and crew were brought on board. Rostran realized that more than fifteen hundred people had gone into the ocean as a result. Rostron was a very religious man. You know, also, he was very heartbroken over the fact that they couldn't arrive in time to save more people, so he organized a memorial service to be held in the first-class lounge in order to allow the grieving Titanic passengers and crew, you know, some form of closure and a way to mourn. So the Carpathia's crew, you know, in addition to getting people's names, writing them down, figuring out how many crew and passengers they brought on board— were also handing out clothing. They were handing out food, blankets. And in addition to this, the Carpathia's own passengers came out and they were doing all they could to assist the crew in helping the Titanic passengers, you know, kind of work through what they just experienced. They tried to do any little thing that they could to make this just a little bit easier. That included giving up their own rooms, you know, doubling or even tripling capacity in other rooms so that the Titanic passengers could have some peace and quiet. Now, Mrs. Ogden, remember Lewis Ogden, the ship is on fire, let's go to the deck. So his wife and a few other women from the Carpathia went around and they were giving, you know, cookies and coffee. Um, trying to console titanic passengers they came up to these two women from the titanic and they were trying to make them feel a little bit better but you know there's nothing you can do there's nothing you can say there's no amount of tea or coffee that can make a situation like that any better so those women you know upset grieving said please just leave us alone we just watched our husbands die Earlier in the morning when, you know, the other lifeboats were coming up to the Carpathia and passengers were being brought up, Ismay was one of them from Collapsible Sea. When he got on board the Carpathia, he didn't speak to anyone. When boat 14 pulled up next to the Carpathia in the morning, uh, Norris Williams was actually able to go up the rope ladder on his own, even though his feet were frostbitten. He drank some brandy. He ate some food that the cooks from the Carpathia had made him that, according to him, was the best meal he'd ever had. And then he found a nice comfortable spot behind the stove. Okay, this is a first-class passenger. He And he went, took a nap behind the stove because it was warm. It was a warm place. And after four or five hours out on the ocean, I don't blame him. Now here's another story of a passenger searching for a loved one. May Futrell, seeing that some of the men had made it off the Titanic and onto the Carpathia, started frantically searching for her husband, Jack. And she's going around asking people, have you seen Jack? Have you seen my Jack? No, no one has seen Jack. Every lifeboat that came up to the Carpathia, she would go out and she would check through all the passengers. No Jack, she would go back to the first class dining saloon and wait for the next lifeboat. And she did this for every single lifeboat, only to discover that her Jack was gone. First class passengers, Madeline Astor, Marion Thayer, Emily Ryerson, would all come to the conclusion in the early hours of the morning, that they were widows. Their husbands were gone. Emily Ryerson, unfortunately, was on her way back to the United States, to Philadelphia, to bury her son, Arthur. Now she would bury her husband and her son. And Eleanor Widener lost both her son and her husband. Women from the Titanic kept trying to find their loved ones. You know, kept asking the captain, kept asking the crew, Are there any boats? There have to be more boats. Please, please, there are more boats out there. There were no more boats. Those were the last. The passengers that were on board the Carpathia were the only survivors. How these women managed to go on, the strength they had, bless them. Because I don't know how some of them did it, especially Eleanor Widener, having lost both her son and her husband. Honestly, I think, I don't know what I would have done in their situation, but that required an incredible amount of strength.
1: We're going to take a step away from the passengers for a second otherwise Adrian and I are going to be blubbering messes and you won't understand a word we're saying. Now, everyone is on board. Everything's cool. Rostra now says we need to get some of the lifeboats. So they take 13 of the Titanic's lifeboats that they are going to return once they're in New York and the other ones they just left them in the water, set them adrift because there was no more room for any more lifeboats. Now as they're pulling all these lifeboats on board, the Mount Temple actually arrived on the scene. Rostran was able to speak with Captain Moore, apprise him of the situation, and ask the captain to just continue the search for survivors, cause maybe, just maybe there's a chance that someone else was there. At around 9 15, as Rostran is, you know, making the plans of set the course to New York, there was a second ship in the distance and after exchanging flag signals since you know the wireless is totally out of commission as the operator is working like mad communicating with everybody else that ship that second ship is none other than the californian as Rostron was going to new york he actually asked captain lord to hey take a look for more survivors for bodies just cuz we got to go so you do the thing and we're going to book it, since, you know, we have the survivors on our ship and we did all the other work. As a service is being held for the survivors and those who have perished, the Carpathia did take one final look in the area to see if there was anything else, anyone else they would be able to find, just to be, you know, quadruply sure before starting their journey to New York. Now, as I mentioned, the wireless was kind of busy at the moment, and that was actually because Harold Cotton, which was Carpathia's operator, and Harold Bride from the Titanic were working tirelessly to broadcast the list of survivors, as well as sending any messages, like private messages, between family members. Bruce Ismay had Harold Cottom send one of the first messages to New York, to the vice president of White Star, And this message was pretty much, you know, we need to get the crew back to England as quickly as possible. And he signed it as Yamsi. That is Ismay spelled backwards. And this is where people start trying to find demons where there are none. There was a lot of controversy surrounding this cable. And that was because people started thinking, you know, he's trying to get the crew back to England so that... They don't have to testify at the Senate hearing that is now starting to form in Washington. And the fact that he signed as Yamsey, as if he was trying to hide his identity. One, he always signed his cables that way. That was just his thing. Two, there was no way for Bruce Ismay to know that this hearing is starting to happen. He wasn't trying to evade the American inquiry. It was happening. He had no knowledge. He, to the end of his days, he pretty much said, I was trying to get the crew back to England so that they can start working again because pay cuts off once the Titanic sank. That was it. So he wanted to make sure that these men could get back to their livelihoods.
0: As Renee mentioned, Harold Bride was helping Harold Cottam to send messages. Now, this is amazing considering... How much time Harold Bride spent standing in Collapsible B. He had frostbitten feet. Okay, he was tired. He was cold. He was hungry, no doubt. He got onto the Carpathia, rested for a bit. A doctor saw to his feet, and then he got right back to work, helping Harold Cottam to send out the messages as efficiently as possible. Kudos to you, Harold Bride. Now, the other passengers, as soon as they were on board the Carpathia, you know, they received medical attention. They were given somewhere to rest, given food. Rostran had to have a tete a tete with Ismay for a bit. Um, his meals were brought to him. You know, he didn't see anyone except Captain Rostran. So eventually, Rostran was like, okay, so we're going to New York. We just received word from the Olympic that she's on her way, and she's asking us if we will offload passengers onto the Olympic. And Ismay was horrified by this idea. He was like, no, absolutely not. We just continue straight to New York. No passenger is going to be put on the Olympic. Please don't send the Olympic to us. Because he was thinking of the panic and devastation that would cause to the passengers that were just on the Titanic The Titanic sank, their loved ones are gone, and then in comes this ship that is the twin of the Titanic, except for the colors of her hull. And Rostron fully agreed, because also, you know, obviously he had to check with Ismay, but the idea of doing something like that, of upsetting the passengers in such a way, was just horrifying to him. So there's this one moment on the Carpathia, which Lady Duff Gordon and Sir Cosmo will never, and did never, live down. So, you know, everybody's on there, Lifeboat 1, which is where they were in, with 12 people inside of it, only five of them passengers. Lady Duff Gordon had this idea that they would all come together and take a photograph to memorialize the fact that they survived the sinking. The crew were still in their life belts from Lifeboat 1, so they got together for this photo. Dr. McGee, one of the Carpathia's doctors, took the camera and he goes, hey, smile, smile, Now, they didn't mean anything by it. It wasn't anything like, hey, we're the most awesome people on this ship because we're alive and we're, you know, together with each other. No, it was just kind of thing that's like, oh, my God, we made it through this ordeal. But uh, not the best idea. Kind of poor taste. And especially when Dr. McGee told them to smile. That set people over the edge. And as I said, you know, that caused years of grief for them. As a result, okay, so
1: the passengers are picked up. They're on their way to New York. We are now going to hop back in time a little bit to a little earlier in the morning so we can talk a little bit about what was going on on my favorite ship ever, the Californian. It's 4 a.m. Chief Officer Stewart is now relieving Stone. Stone has now told him this is everything that's been going on. All right now, as Stone is doing this, we have Stuart, who's taking his spyglass. He's looking out into the distance to see, hey, you know, let me see what I can figure out from all the information you've told me. And he spotted a steamer in the distance. He asks Stone, yo, man, this the same ship? No, it was not the same ship. We know it was the Carpathia. They, however, do not know who it is yet. But the only thing Stone could say was he is absolutely positive. It was not the ship he saw firing rockets earlier. Now, Stuart, I would say he's probably one of the only people on this ship that has a brain. So he immediately thinks, okay, rockets can mean distress. Interesting. Okay. But the problem is, there's a habit on the Californian. It's like a pattern of behavior called inaction. He didn't do anything until 4.30 in the morning, even with this idea floating in his head. And the only thing he did was, wake up Captain Lord... 4.30. 4.30. Wow, early, right? Yeah, no, that was the time that Lord usually woke up. So, Lord's awake, he's up, he's listening, Stuart is trying to say, these is everything that happened, and Lord goes, yeah, 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 I know, Stone told me, so shut up, we're done. Now, they go up, they're plotting how to get out of this ice field, and Stuart's like, uh, Captain, are we gonna, f- you know, find out about that ship that was firing rockets, just to make sure that she's okay, you know. <laughs> That's all. Lord takes a look out the window with his spyglass and is like, mm, nah, the steamer looks fine. And again, we say, that was the Carpathia, not the Titanic. However, Stewart didn't actually say that. No, he didn't say anything. He wasn't like, ah, uh, Captain, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but um, not the same ship. Instead, he kind of goes around Lord, and he goes down to the wireless operator, to Cyril Evans, and is like... I need to know. Can you find out what's been going on with that ship earlier? Evans gets on the wireless, and he is immediately bombarded by the Frankfurt, who says, did you know the Titanic sank? And this is where there's a nice domino effect. So he's like, uh, no, what? So the Frankfurt gives him coordinates. And then the Virginian cuts in, is like, hey, did you hear about the hi- hear about the Titanic? And Cyril Evans is like, um about that. So the Virginian also gives him the coordinates, and they're exactly the same. Cyril and Stuart run up to the bridge. They give it to Captain Lord, and his reaction, I think, is the most interesting of all, because it is exact coordinates. There's no, like, guessing, like, uh, mm, well, maybe. No, it's exact coordinates. And he looks at it and says, huh, this position isn't good enough. Get me another one. Let's think about this for a second. So the Carpathia was able to get there with these exact coordinates and the Mount Temple was able to get there and the Baltic was on their way. So obviously these coordinates were good enough for somebody. I mean they were so good that Captain Rostron actually at one point congratulated Boxhall and saying these these were excellent. Like these coordinates were awesome. Thank you so much for getting that done and making it as accurate as it possibly could. But then you also have to think of it this way. Lord is a captain. He knows navigation even if he's not necessarily the best captain. Looking at these coordinates and knowing exactly where the Californian was located, because they take record of that when they stop for the night, he would have immediately known just how close the Titanic was. So that when they kept calling down to him and saying, these rockets, there's this other ship, what's going on? He, at that moment, must have known, I fucked up. But no, okay, cool. Evans goes back down, gets the coordinates again and says... Nope. These are the coordinates. This is it, sir. Without another word, Lord starts charting a way to get to these coordinates. Now, I get so angry. Because instead of taking a more direct route, he decides he's going to essentially go in the most roundabout, ridiculous fucking route known to mankind. So he goes backwards. So he goes from being like, 10 miles away to now being, like, 14 miles away, and he goes around the entire ice field before, you know, coming back from a completely different direction to meet up with the Carpathia. It wasn't until about 8.30 in the morning—now, this is four hours later—that the Californian was in view of the Carpathia. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the Carpathia and the Californian, they spoke— they were going to stay behind, the Californian, that is, to search for more bodies. And what's interesting is that 3rd Officer Groves later claimed that the Californians stopped searching for bodies at 10.30 in the morning, whereas in Lord's Log, it's written that they stopped at 11.40. And as we all know, from Lord's behavior, that is, his log is the only log as he didn't even record any of the rockets that his men mentioned
0: to him. Not one rocket was recorded in the log. So to summarize, Captain Lord is one big fat liar. He's a liar, liar, pants, super on fire. I have no words. Renee can no longer speak about it. It's too much for her. I mean, I could, but then I would just be cursing
1: every two seconds.
0: I like your honesty. (laughs) All right, so as all of this... Craziness is taking place out on the water as the Titanic is sinking and the Carpathia is steaming and then arriving and saving. There's a bunch of stuff going on inland as well. So remember, the message that Phillips originally sent about the Titanic being in distress was received by Cape Race and then pushed further inland. Wanamakers received it as well, pushed further inland. You know, so News outlets are starting to get little tidbits that there's a disaster happening out on the ocean. The Titanic is involved. What exactly is the outcome? They have no idea at this point. At one point, a message came through that said that the Titanic was down by her head and that the women and children were being put off in lifeboats. And that's how the media outlets had to go on. Now, as we know, the news likes to report things before all the facts are in. This was something that also happened with the 1972 Munich Olympics, if anyone is familiar with that event. So they started printing newspapers with headlines. You know, on the 16th, a newspaper headline came out, Titanic sunk, no lives lost. Uh, okay, except now you're giving hope to all these people. You don't know the facts, but you're putting them out there like it is a fact. So different stories are starting to come out, you know, April 15th onward, that the Titanic sank, that no lives lost, that women in lifeboats. Carpathia was not letting anything pass through to the media because Rostrin couldn't give two shits about the media and what they want to know. It's not about them. It's about the passengers and their privacy and about the families waiting for them back in New York, in Southampton, in France, in Ireland, in all the countries in Europe, you know, that people were coming from. He doesn't care how many headlines these newspapers want to make and how many papers they want to sell. And of course, you know, the media is starting to get angry. How dare Captain Rostron keep all of this information to himself and not share it with the world? What a douche. In the Halifax, New York Evening Sun on April 15th, you know, they wrote that everyone was saved from the Titanic and the... Titanic is fine. It's being towed into Halifax. You would think that they would wait to hear something from White Star itself instead of just printing all of these headlines, but no, they have to get something out there, right? So White Star didn't even know the truth of it until the evening of the 15th, when the Olympic sent confirmation that the Titanic had struck an iceberg and sunk. Two hours later, Cottam and Bride sent confirmation to the White Star offices that this is, in fact, what did happen. So the next thing that the Carpathia sent through were the list of survivors, which started being written up outside of White Star offices so the survivors' families could come and see if, you know, their loved ones had, in fact, survived the sinking or if they were lost. And then, in addition to making up things about the Titanic before they knew the truth, now they don't know the fate of Captain Smith. So one paper writes that Captain Smith committed suicide. Like, how dare you print such things without knowing all the facts? Especially in a time where the facts don't come through as quickly as they do today. Okay, so the Carpathia is keeping silent. Well, these newspaper people are angry. Now they're trying to... Break down the doors of White Star to get information. Step back. They're not talking to you. Until White Star got that confirmation, however, on the night of the 15th. They were just as anxious as everyone else to find out what exactly went down at the Atlantic. So they're trying to reach the Carpathia. You know, they're not sure if the Titanic did sink. So they're, you know, they're trying to send messages to the Titanic And they're receiving no reply on either end, obviously, because the Titanic is at the bottom of the Atlantic. And on the other hand, the Carpathia is silent because Captain Rostrum was like, zip it. No one talks to anyone. So on the 15th, once they got that confirmation, the vice president of White Star had to go out in front of all of those reporters and confirm that, yes, the Titanic has sunk. There are survivors. There's not as many as you would think. And they are on board the Carpathia, that the Carpathia is on her way to New York.
1: People started gathering outside of the White Star offices in New York. They were trying to figure out what had happened to their loved ones. And some of the people that ended up at the office were the wife of Ben Guggenheim, Vincent Astor, who was John Astor's son. And he was taken into Franklin's office. And Franklin is the VP of White Star. And he left in tears he was absolutely devastated and obviously understandably why and then there was also jp morgan junior that is not senior apparently daddy did not tell his kid hey i'm staying in france and i'm not going to be on the titanic i equate jp morgan senior as that kid that won't text his parents that hey i'm alive and i'm safe could have easily just telegrammed but hey okay So Junior's over here like, my God, was my father on the Titanic? Is he dead? What the hell has happened? And then there was William H. Force, which was, who was, rather, the father-in-law of John Astor and Madeline Astor's father. We have two conflicting accounts. One account says he went down to the offices and he was told there Another account says he was waiting by the phone at home and a jackass reporter called him to ask him, Hey, is it true the Titanic saying? Did your kids die? And this man was absolutely heartbroken, saying, like, no, no, this can't be true, this can't be true, this can't be true. No. So we're not sure which account is accurate. So we thought we'd just give you both. And then unfortunately, there is also Mrs. Hess, who was the daughter of Isidore and Ida Strauss, the couple that chose to stay on the Titanic. And because these stupid newspapers keep just printing news when they don't have any of the freaking facts, and as we mentioned, one of them says that Titanic was being towed to Halifax, she got on a train and she went to, to Halifax hoping to see her parents, and unfortunately no one was able to reach her before she left.
0: Right. I mean, you could say, oh, you know, why didn't she just wait to get information? But it's 1912. This isn't where, you know, in 10 minutes there will be a new update. It's just a lot of guesswork. No one knows what's true and what's not. And I'm sure she went to Halifax on the hope that that was the true story, that Hal- that Titanic was being towed to Halifax and her mother and father would greet her there.
1: Because just imagine being in her position— do you think you would be able to wait to find out what's the real story, or do you think you're going to go insane if you do nothing, so you have to do something? And one her something was trying to find answers for herself. And still, as these families are being told their loved ones have perished, the newspapers continue. They're pissed off at Rostron, they're pissed off at the Carpathia, they're pouting, they're ranting, they're like, how dare you? and Part of the reason that Cottom and Bride weren't giving anyone any news was because Marconi himself said, don't tell anyone the story, because he wanted them to get paid
0: to do an exclusive with the New York Times. But it wasn't just about greed. It was, A, he was looking out for his wireless operators. He wanted them to be able to earn more than they were already earning. But it was also in respect and deference to the survivors on the Carpathia because he was thinking that he was doing a good deed here. You know, his wireless operators can get paid a little extra money for a story that's going to be out anyway by the time that they all arrive and the passengers start sharing all of their things. But it also protects them from being bombarded by outside peoples trying to contact them via the wireless. And it also protects the passengers and their families from being outed in the newspapers long before they're ready to be so. Exactly.
1: So what's more important, telling the world what happened or telling the families of the survivors that, yes, some of your family is in fact coming home? So it ended up being they would rather have them transmit the survivors' names than anything else because that took precedence.
0: It took a total of three days for the Carpathia to make her way back to New York. Now, during that time, there were still two children without parents, and those were Michel and Edmond Nevratil. Those were the two boys kidnapped by their own father. He had put them on a lifeboat, and he had gone down with the ship. A passenger by the name of Margaret Hayes actually took charge of them and was responsible for them for the rest of the journey. Norris Williams, uh, remember, he's taken a nap behind the nice warm stove. He actually got up, you know, finally saw a doctor, and the doctor was like, mm, the frostbite's so bad that, you know, we're probably going to have to amputate. But good news. We can do that right here on the ship. We don't have to wait till we get to land. That's right. That's right. So all's good. And Norris Williams was like, no, uh, this is not a good idea. I don't like this because I'm a tennis player and I need my legs. So the doctor was like, all right, fine. If you walk around a lot, you stay active and you keep your legs warm, you can reverse maybe the effects of the frostbite. So that's exactly what he did. He was up and walking around every hour or two, you know, taking warm baths to soak his feet. And luckily for him, he actually ended up being just fine. At some point, the Carpathia did stop in order to perform a funeral at sea for the passengers and crew that didn't make it. And one of those passengers was a first class man by the name of William Hoyt.
1: On that very first night, with Cottam and Bride working in the wireless room, literally most likely without any brakes at all, They were able to send to New York the names of 321 first and second class passengers. That was with the promise that they would send the names of the third class and crew the next day. There was only so much they could do. Due to how exhausted Cottom was, he actually sent one name incorrectly, and that was the name of Mr. Millet or Mr. Mile, we're not really sure how it's supposed to be pronounced, which would be Frank Millet. So, Frank Millett was incorrectly presumed alive now at that night, President Taft and his wife they were in Washington at the theater, enjoying themselves none the wiser when someone from the White House came up to the President gave him a note that told him there had been a sinking. The President and his wife immediately left, and that's when you know the president is he's worried because remember his dear friend. Archie Butte was on the Titanic, so he made sure to contact Franklin, the VP of White Star, to see, is Archie Butte one of the survivors? And he went to bed that night saying, let me know if there is any news at all. I don't care. Wake me up. All right, so Margaret Brown is a no-nonsense kind of lady, and I love her for it. So she had this idea. She wanted to start a fund for the third-class passengers as they were the ones who were who lost everything. And they were able to raise $4,000 right then and there. And she was named head of the committee that would be in charge of all of this. She worked every day with those third-class passengers, making sure they had everything they needed, that they were being taken care of. And she wanted to make sure that Passengers knew that this committee was there for them. They were there for whatever they needed, so they posted a bulletin about it. And fortunately, people came forward and were like, hey. And they spoke with the committee about it. Now, there were people on the ship who were talking about the men, who were like, oh, woe is me, I survived, oh my god, what? And Margaret Brown wasn't having any of it. She really thought that them pitying themselves for surviving Was pathetic. Her idea was, you survived, get over it and move on. Like, be thankful that you're alive. However, there were women on the ship who were resentful, angry. You know, they're grieving. They've lost their husbands, and then here there are some men who did survive. And unfortunately, one of the men, Major Arthur Puchin, he went over to Lightoller and was like, Hey, can you give me a note? And Toller pretty much gave him a doctor's note that said yes. Major Puchin, he acted with bravery and courage and all of that.
0: So on Tuesday night, this is the second day of their journey on their way back to New York. There was a thunderstorm that hit the Carpathia. And because of the thunder, because of the lightning, Titanic survivors woke up panicking that they had struck another iceberg, that there were more distress rockets being fired off. This was even more trauma on top of the trauma they had already experienced. Um, It would actually end up raining for the next two days. It would still be raining when the Carpathia made her way into New York Harbor. Now, London and New York and Southampton were, um, for lack of a better way to say it, were experiencing pockets of mourning. So in New York, the flags were all flying at half-staff. Any theater owned by Harry Harris was closed. It went dark. And the department store Macy's closed in memory of Ida and Isidore Strauss. In London, they were starting to post the names of the survivors outside of the White Star office as well, just like in New York. And Southampton, the poor people of Southampton, they were the worst off in terms of losing loved ones because the majority of the crew and staff were from Southampton. There were 885 crew and staff when the Titanic set sail. There were only 212 survivors. By the afternoon on Thursday, this is the day that the Carpathia is set to arrive in New York, people had already started lining the piers in Battery Park. They were waiting for the ship to come into sight. The reporters were freaking monsters. That's the only way I could put it. They had zero sympathy or empathy for any of the Titanic survivors. But when the Carpathia finally came into view, they were using megaphones to shout questions at the Carpathia, asking if this survivor was on there, you know, how did the sinking happen? Instead of just taking a step back and letting these traumatized people just, you know, sit for just one moment. There was one reporter that actually made it onto the Carpathia, but unluckily for him, Captain Rostron had him detained at the bridge. There was absolutely no way that he was letting this idiot talk to any of Rostron's passengers. So by nine o'clock that night, there were more than 30,000 people standing along the pier, standing along the Hudson River, waiting for the Carpathia. It is pouring rain and they don't care. They just want to see this ship come into view. Some of them are because, you know, their loved ones are on the Carpathia. Others just want to see things happen. I guess there's nothing to do because TV's not a thing yet. So a little after 9 p.m., the Carpathia finally made her way into New York Harbor. This was April 18th, a Thursday, and all of the boats, every single one in the harbor, let off their bells and whistles in honor of the Carpathia's gallantry. Then there was a moment of shock. Because the Carpathia went right by her pier and to the White Star pier. It was just an oh shit kind of moment because, you know, everybody's standing there going, what the heck is going on? That's not where Cunard ships dock. And then the Carpathia dropped off White Star's lifeboats. You know, this very ominous action, not intentionally, but that's just how it came off to the people in the crowd. And then the Carpathia turned back around and went back to Pier 54, where she docked.
1: When the Carpathia docked, the crowd just went silent. And in this crowd was Frank Millett's son. So there was Lawrence, who was 27, and Jack, who was 23. Now, Lawrence was already living in New York. He worked on Wall Street. And, you know, coming here, he brought with him a flask of whiskey and some cigars because he thought his father would really appreciate that and enjoy them after everything that he had gone through. And then there was Jack, who had actually come down on Monday to New York from Harvard after hearing about the Titanic disaster. Also in the crowd was some of President Taft's men because he wanted to know for sure, even though he had a sinking feeling in his gut, did Archie Butte survive or was he one of the fallen? When it came to the passengers disembarking, Captain Rostron actually had the Carpathias passengers get off first, simply because he didn't want them to wait so long, knowing how much, like, hoopla there would be really around the Titanic survivors and that they would be on the ship unnecessarily long. It wasn't until 9.30 p.m. that the first Titanic survivor got off the ship. Now, some of these survivors were taken immediately to the hospital, some were taken home, others To a hotel, and then there were some who were sent to a shelter, and those were mostly the third class passengers as they were coming to America to start a new life, so they had nothing. Vincent Astor, who was John Astor's son, actually got onto the Carpathia to get Madeline Astor, his stepmother, off, and knowing that there would be so much press, literally trying to blind her with flashes because they're freaking bloodhounds. There was actually a limo waiting for them elsewhere, so he was able to get her out that way to avoid those evil journalist people that call themselves humans.
0: Out in the crowd was Renee Harris's brother, and he was standing there, you know, worrying over the fact that he has to tell his sister that her beloved Harry is gone. And she comes off the ship, walks up to him. He doesn't have to say a word, because God, this strong woman just looks him straight in the eye and goes... I have come alone. And they just knew. They knew. And obviously she would be the one who would know before them because she's on the Carpathia and it's very obvious that her husband is not. And then there was Lawrence
1: and Jack Millet, who they're anxiously waiting for their father. They're searching the crowd, you know, for him and they're not seeing him. And they're just starting to like kind of panic on the inside. Like, please no. So Jack left. He went to go and get some information to see was his father actually one of the survivors or not and he found out that no his father was in fact not one of the survivors to which he pretty much like exclaimed my god before completely breaking down
0: so among the crowd was senator william alden smith who had brought with him two of his close friends the u.s marshals and they were standing there waiting for the titanic crew to disembark so they could serve them with federal subpoenas Those subpoenas were served to, as I said, the crew, the officers, to J. Bruce Ismay, and to Captain Rostron. Because while this is all happening, while the Carpathia is making her way to New York, Alden was working behind the scenes to start this inquiry, because how the hell did a ship like the Titanic sink? And that's the question he wanted answered, and he wanted to know why so many lives were lost. So all through the night on Thursday, Margaret Brown was helping the steerage passengers out. Um, unfortunately, the poor third class passengers weren't able to get off the ship until 11 o'clock that night because they had to be quarantined instead of being doing that at Ellis Island. That was done on the ship. Lucky them, um, because they had to basically pass medical inspection that they were, you know, medically fit enough to enter America. Margaret Brown was essentially helping them off the ship and also trying to find a way for them to get to wherever it is they need to go. Another first-class passenger, Noelle, the Countess of Rothes, was also still on board helping Margaret Brown and the third-class passengers, and they were very concerned about Rhoda Abbott because of the ordeal she had experienced in collapsible A. She still couldn't walk. You know, Rhoda was like, it's fine, the Salvation Army will take care of me. But no, they were going to make sure that she was going to be well taken care of. So they paid for an ambulance to take her to New York Hospital, and then they also put her up in a hotel. Margaret Brown actually stayed on the ship until the third-class passengers were off, and then she stayed on in New York uh, because her brother brought her good news, that her grandson was on the mend. So instead of returning to Denver, she stayed in New York and set up the Titanic Survivors Committee in Ritz-Carlton. That was their home base. And now the press starts getting nasty, okay? Instead of just not fact-checking, they're just being savage towards some of the survivors. A lot of the men, they were, you know, deemed cowards. Uh, Poor William T. Sloper, his name was in the papers that he got off the Titanic wearing a woman's nightgown. That's how he survived. He was such a coward, he had to dress like a woman to survive the sinking. And the Duff Gordons, Lady Duff Gordon and Sir Cosmo also were being ripped apart in the press. Lifeboat One, they started calling it the millionaire boat because there was a rumor now going around that Sir Cosmo had paid off the crew in Lifeboat One to not go back for survivors in the water. That's simply not true, but the press took it. They ran with it. And then the tabloids in London also ran with it. So they just could not get out from the stigma of Lifeboat One. Okay,
1: so... The Carpathia is is docked in New York. They've all been taken care of. The Carpathia passengers are now also on their way home. Let's hop on over to the Californian. So almost immediately after the Californian docked on April 19th in Boston Harbor, story spread wide that the Californian had watched the Titanic sink. And in order to get ahead of these rumors, Lord spoke with anyone that would listen that he was this great stand-up guy who didn't do a damn thing wrong. And anyone who said otherwise, they literally had no honor. That was pretty much his way of putting it. Now, a few of the reporters came knocking, and they asked him, where was the Californian during the night of April 14th and the early morning of April 15th? His response? He couldn't tell them because it was state's secrets, which was complete and total bullshit since the Leyland Logs, as the Californian is a Leyland Liner, were always available to the public. But lucky for him, the reporters dropped the matter and they started focusing their attention on the Senate hearing in New York that was being held by Senator Smith. Now, Lord was able to bully most of his crew into keeping silent, but there were two men who were like, "Mm, no, we're going to talk about this. So one was James McGregor, who was the ship's carpenter, and he told his cousin that officers on the Californians saw the distress rockets. The officers had watched several rockets being fired, and when they told Captain Lord, he did squat diddly. And then the other guy who spoke out was Ernest Gill. He was an assistant engineer, and his motive, like, motivation was that he just wanted to set the record straight. He went to a notary office with four other engineers And swore in front of a reporter that he saw the distress rockets, like he personally saw them, and that it couldn't have been more than like 10 miles away on April 15th, it was a little bit after midnight, and that he knew the captain had been told by his officers about them. Ernest Gill's affidavit was printed by the Boston American, and a copy of it was also sent to Senator Smith in New York. And then James McGregor's story was printed in the Clinton Daily item, and... It's interesting because on April 22nd, this is the day before the stories were published, Senator Smith had learned that there was a ship in the distance who was close enough to watch the sinking. He wanted to find that ship, and now he was going to get it.
0: But before Senator Smith can have that ship, we're going to take a few minutes and talk about the recovery of the dead. White Star employed four different ships to go out and search for more bodies to bring back for burial. One of those was the McKay-Bennett. She set out on April 17th from Halifax in Nova Scotia. And within the next week, she was able to find 190 bodies. Unfortunately, only the first class passengers were embalmed because the ship didn't have enough supplies for everyone. So all the other passengers were buried at sea. So out of that 190 figure, 116 of those bodies were buried at sea. When the McKay Bennett finally arrived back in Halifax the flags flew at half-staff. One of the bodies recovered by one of these ships was Frank Millet's, so he was able to be sent home for burial by his family. John Jacob Astor's body was also found in a life belt, and according to the accounts, he had his pocket watch open in his hand as if he was checking the time before he went into the ocean. A lot of the bodies, however, were not recovered. Unfortunately, you know, because of how the ocean works and waves and things like that, a lot of them were dispersed over, you know, a huge area. So by the time any ships got there, they would already have been, you know, dozens if not hundreds of miles away. Some of the victims might have sunk already by that point. If water had gotten into their lungs, then that would have weighed them down and forced them under the ocean. Another ship, the Minia, found another 17 bodies, and another ship found another three more. Three bodies were recovered by the RMS Oceanic. Uh, They were still in lifeboat A. Um, That was the lifeboat that Rhoda Abbott had been in that 13 people were rescued from. The bodies that could be identified were returned to their families for burial. Those who weren't were buried in Halifax. Lawrence, Frank Millett's son, was actually in Halifax when his father's body was brought in, and he was able to view it. The next day, he accompanied his father's body back to Boston.
1: And on this train was also the body of Isidore Strauss. However, Ida Strauss's body was never recovered.
0: So here's where the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, comes in. Not on the Titanic, but afterwards. While it was not played at Frank Millet's funeral, it was played at several others. So Major Archibald Butte had two
1: funerals, one of which was in his hometown of Georgia. And... One was in Washington. Now, at both of these funerals, they did play Nearer My God to Thee, and that was because Archie himself had chosen it when he was making the arrangements for his funeral when he was alive, and it was only because he really liked the hymn. Both of these funerals were attended by President Taft, and he was able to get through the Georgia funeral just fine while giving the eulogy in Washington. He completely broke down. Like, that was it. The grief had finally just all come out near my god to thee was also played in london at westminster chapel on april 25th to honor wt stead then there was wallace hartley well we don't know what him or what music was played he was a hometown hero now his body was recovered and it was sent back to england where it was then transported it took 10 hours by, like, a horse-drawn carriage to get his body back to his hometown of Colm. And on the day of his funeral, all of the businesses just shut down. They say, like, there were probably around 40,000 people that came to attend the funeral. And these were people that were coming from all over the north. And they all lined the street during the funeral and to stand outside of Bethel Independent Methodist Chapel. For 75 years, the Titanic would remain the greatest maritime disaster in history. It wasn't surpassed until 1987, when nearly 4,400 passengers died when
0: a Filipino ferry sank. And in regards to those passengers and crew that could not be identified, they were buried, as I said, in Halifax, and they did have stones, and all it says was died April 15th, 1912. That's to mark them as one of those who went down with the Titanic, but since they couldn't identify them, there's no additional information they could add. There was also a small child that went unidentified for decades. Okay, until finally in 2002, they performed DNA tests and they were like, okay, we think this might be the child that was from a family from Finland. Five years after the fact, the DNA tests were done again, and they solidified the child's identity. This was 19-month-old Sidney Goodwin. And if you listened to episode two, when we were introducing our families and passengers, the Goodwin family was a family of eight, and they all went down with the ship. So... There is an epitaph on his stone, and it says, Erected to the memory of an unknown child whose remains were recovered after the disaster to the Titanic, April fifteenth, 1912. As Adrian mentioned
1: earlier, Senator Smith was there when the Carpathia docked in order to serve Subpoenas. Now, when he found out that President Taft wasn't going to open up his own investigation, he decided to form a committee. So, Smith handpicked the men who would join him in the investigation. So, there was Republican Jonathan Bourne, who was chosen since he knew what it was like to be shipwrecked. Then there was Republican Theodore Burton, who was the National Waterways Commission Chairman. Then there were Democrats Duncan Fletcher and Francis G. Newlands. And there was former cabin boy Republican George Perkins and virtually unknown Democrat Furnifold Simmons. The investigation began on April 19th at 10 in the morning at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. In the six weeks the American inquiry lasted, Smith called 82 witnesses, which included the surviving officers, Captain Rostron, Captain Lord, Harold Bride, and Harold Cottom. 20 of the witnesses were passengers, since they wouldn't have had a reason to lie about what happened when the Titanic sank. After all, Smith wanted the whole truth of what happened that night. Many people believe that Senator Smith was inept, asking simple questions such as, what is an iceberg? He didn't do this because he didn't know what it was. He just wanted to make sure that the people who were watching the inquiry or later read the transcripts would be able to completely understand all of the nautical language so that they too could grasp how the unsinkable Titanic had sustained enough damage to sink.
0: On April 21st at 10.30 in the morning, the first witness to be called was Bruce Ismay. He was given a tough time during the questioning, and one of the main issues that came up was the issue of the lifeboats. Why weren't there enough lifeboats for all the passengers? Obviously, Ismay wasn't going to tell them that that had been at his recommendation. Realizing his error, he made sure that any White Star ship sailing from New York didn't cast off without making sure they were equipped with enough lifeboats for every soul on board. At the same time, Ismay was also fighting a battle with the public. In Hearst newspapers, they were calling him J. Brute Ismay. The people needed someone to blame, and it was going to be him. But Eden Rosenbaum, bless her, was one of the survivors who truly felt sorry for Ismay, and she made sure to tell reporters that it was Ismay himself who made sure she got into a lifeboat. While the issue of the lifeboats was important, Senator Smith was curious about the watertight compartments. After all, if they were truly watertight, there would have been no need for the lifeboats as the Titanic wouldn't have sank. And of course, Smith learned that watertight meant watertight, unless the water was higher than 15 feet from water level. After Ismay was Arthur Rostran, captain of the Carpathia. He was questioned about the response to the Titanic's distress call, what they did to prepare for their arrival, and how the survivors were brought on board. Rostran actually had a list in his pocket detailing all his orders to his crew when turning about and heading towards the Titanic.
1: From 4th Officer Boxhall's testimony, two important things were learned. The first was that the officers of the Titanic were ill-prepared. The loading of the lifeboats was absolute chaos when it shouldn't have been. The second piece of information learned was that when Boxhall was recounting the night, he mentioned trying to morse a ship in the distance, which appeared to be more than no more than five miles away. As we mentioned earlier, Senator Smith really wanted to find that ship. Now, Boxhall's testimony was on April 22nd, and that was the day before... The Boston American and Clinton Daily Item articles hit the paper, the ones that named the Californian as the ship in the distance. It was as if Lady Justice was smiling down on him. Smith then served Captain Lord and his officers with subpoenas that demanded they appear in D.C. on April 25th, since the hearings were moving there from New York. Ernest Gill took the stand after Smith interviewed him in private. He wanted to make sure that Gill was a reliable witness. So Gill testified in front of the entire committee that, yes, he saw those rockets. Plural. Not just one, several rockets. Next to testify was my favorite person ever, Captain Lord. And boy, did he lie his pants off. First, he said he didn't see the ship, and that the ship his officers told him about was way too small to be the Titanic. How would he know if he didn't see it? Hmm. Curious, And then not to mention that this tiny steamer wasn't in distress. And again, I ask, how would he know if he didn't see? But okay, fine. And eventually, the steamer sailed off into the distance at about 2.30 in the morning. Convenient. Then, it was suddenly his officer's fault, as they only told him about the rockets once that entire evening. Yeah. Okay, pal. Anything to make it sound like this so-called tiny steamer wasn't in danger and firing rockets for fun, but okay. Lord was in for a rude awakening because Smith wasn't having any of his shit. When pressed, Lord's answers kept changing, which wasn't much of a surprise considering his statements to the press followed the same pattern. First, he was 30 miles away. Then, he was 20 miles away. Then, his ship hadn't seen any rockets at all. What is known is that he was less than 11 miles away, practically a front row seat to the sinking. So, in addition to the main log book that captains have to keep to make sure that they keep every, like, records of the entire journey, there's also a scrap log, which is a backup. And the Californian scrap log entries for April 14th to 15th were gone. The main log that Lord controlled didn't mention the ship in the distance, the rockets, or the Californian trying to contact the steamer by Morse Lamp. Why was the scrap log missing? Well, shucks.
0: Lord couldn't answer that surprised us neither there was a lot of attention given to a specific issue were most of the people who died in third class and if so was it because the gates were locked and those passengers couldn't get to the upper decks smith was going to find those answers smith discovered through daniel buckley's testimony remember a third class passenger that while the gate was locked at one point the third class passengers were able to get to the top deck even locked with enough force the gate could be broken through they'd get out one way or another the problem, though, wasn't the gate, but how long it took the third class passengers to realize there was something wrong. The ones closer to the damage knew immediately. However, the ones further away, who weren't told anything, might not have reached the top deck until there were practically no lifeboats left. Smith announced his findings on May 18, 1912. No one was at fault. Legally speaking, that is. He also absolved Captain Smith in the sense that he hadn't done anything necessarily wrong or illegal. He was basically being a captain and captaining the ship in the way many other captains would have done at that time. However, he should have been more alert and taken more precautions, but that was an issue that required a change in protocol, which he could do nothing about. The way things had been done was no longer the way they should be done. That was Smith's view. There definitely needed to be a change, and the Titanic was the unmistakable evidence of that. When heading into dangerous water, extra precautions had to be taken. Slow down, extra lookouts, getting all messages to the bridge. But since the U.S. had no authority to make any of the changes they proposed, they instead used the information they gathered to create suggestions for future regulation changes that would ensure passenger safety and require shipbuilders and liners to own up to their failures. Smith also wasn't able to do anything in terms of Captain Lord, but he had gathered the information and was so hopeful that the British inquiry would do something about him and his lack of action. In the meantime, he ripped Lord a new one, letting the public know that Lord failed as a captain when he chose not to help the Titanic. On the other side of that, Smith was absolutely blown away by Captain Rostron. The captain was a hero, and he wanted everyone to know it. Eventually, Rostron was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal.
1: Now, how did the British react to the American Inquiry? Let's talk about that for a second. People in Great Britain turned their noses up at the American Inquiry. How dare those upstart Americans launch an inquiry and question British subjects. Forget the fact that the American inquiry really got into the nitty-gritty details of the sinking and uncovered the whole role the Californian played and didn't play in the sinking. The U.S. shook the trees and a whole bunch of shit fell out of them. People were having a good laugh at that silly Senator Smith and his stupid questions about what makes up ice and watertight compartments. Then there was the British press, who were brutal in their depiction of Smith. Sure, the Titanic was owned by an American company, but it was built by British subjects, with British subjects making up the crew. That silly senator didn't know a thing about nautical things. This was a matter to be settled in Britain by the British, not the Americans. Mm. Smith was accused of using the tragedy of the Titanic to further his career, and because he was so inept, he was making things worse, which was negatively affecting how people viewed the U.S. In reality, though, Smith was honestly invested in getting to the truth because he was outraged that such a tragic loss of life could happen and with so many American lives lost on board. But there was a light in the dark. G.K. Chesterton wrote in the London News that although the American newspapers may be uncouth in their way of doing things, The English were worse because they did the exact opposite. They stayed silent and tried to keep things under the table. Then, above all, there was the review of reviews. W.T. Stead was the founder, and he had gone down with the Titanic. As a result, the journal was understandably upset. They printed a statement directed at other British papers, and they said, We prefer the ignorance of Senator Smith to the knowledge of Mr. Ismay. Experts have told us the Titanic was unsinkable. We prefer ignorance to such knowledge. And we are quoting directly from The Other Side of the Night by Daniel Allen Butler.
0: The British also made sure that they had their own inquiry. And running the British inquiry was the British Board of Trade. The inquiry began on May 2nd, and it lasted eight weeks. The head of the inquiry was Charles Bigham... Lord Mercy of Toxith. He was president of the Probate, Divorce, and Admiralty Division for the English High Court. Say that one five times fast. The committee he put together was more targeted. He chose men who had naval and nautical knowledge. Mercy was joined by J. Harvard Biles, a professor of naval architecture, Royal Navy Officer Rear Admiral, S.A. Go Calthrop, Senior Engineer Assessor Edward C. Chastin Master of the Admiralty Court Captain A.W. Clark, and former Royal Navy Commander F.C.A. Lyon. The reason many had a problem with the Board of Trade overseeing the Inquiry was because people worried that they would be sweeping everything under the rug. Plus, many people blamed the British Board of Trade for the Titanic disaster. They may not have put the iceberg in the Titanic's path, but they were in charge of the safety and seaworthiness regulations the Titanic passed with so-called flying colors. Because the British Inquiry parroted the American Inquiry, we're not going to spend so much time on it. There is a slight difference, though, between them. Smith and his committee wanted to find out how the Titanic sank and how there was such a large loss of life. Mercy, however, and his committee wanted to find out why. Why did this thing happen? The most important thing to take away from this investigation is what was discovered while questioning Captain Lord. Let's give credit where credit is due. Had the story about Lord and the inaction of the California not broken in the U.S. during their investigation, there would have been no need for the British to question him. They went at him and held nothing back. They kept asking the same questions. Were they distress rockets? They asked it 8 million different ways, trying to trip him up. And eventually, they were able to throw the book at him. The Board of Trade Regulations book, that is. The one that defined what a distress rocket looked like. And then it happened. He messed up. Something along the lines of, was it a distress rocket? Yes. Uh, wait, no. After that, it didn't matter what he said. He was busy sleeping when the Titanic was calling for aid. He was done. He couldn't play the victim. He couldn't blame his officers. Great captain, right? His own officers contradicted his testimony when they were on the stand because they were asked to leave the room while Lord was being cross-examined. Can't tell your officers what to say when they're not in the room. Second Officer Lightoller's wife, Sylvia, was one
1: hell of a woman. So she went up to the officers of the Californian and scolded them for failing to do their duty. It was then that those officers came clean. The rockets they saw were distress rockets, and they knew it. They were too scared of Captain Lord to take action. This woman was able to do what a panel of highly qualified men couldn't. Seeing this, Lightoller steered Sylvia to Captain Lord and encouraged her to shake his hand. Lightoller said, "My dear, you can't kick a man
0: when he's down. So let's talk about what the investigation turned up." They decided the reason Titanic hit an iceberg was because she was going too fast, even though several officers and Ismay himself testified she never reached top speed. That aside, they found issue with the lookouts not being on super high alert, even though they were knowingly sailing into an ice field. Captain Smith, like with the American investigation, was found innocent since he followed regulations and captained his ship like any other captain would, and how he had many times before in his long career. The Californian was once again ripped a new one because they might have minimized the loss of life if they'd actually done something. Unfortunately, White Star was not held responsible for any part of what happened to the Titanic, even though it was their liner. However, the committee did admit that there was an issue with the design, so they made a change to the bulkhead height requirements to ensure watertight compartments actually meant watertight. Better late than never, I guess, right? Now, there's this idea floating
1: around in ether that had the Californian actually responded when those distress rockets were being sent, they would have been able to save every single soul On board, and that's just not accurate at all. So, let's just kind of go through this for a second. So, the night of the sinking on April 14th, Lord actually made a smart decision. He said, Hey, keep the engines going just so that they're already warm, just in case, whatever. So, let's talk about this. They see the distress rockets, they tell Lord, He's like, Okay, cool. He says, You know, time to slow ahead, get this going. They're able to somehow maneuver themselves out of the ice and towards the Titanic, which would have taken them about 40 minutes, and they would have gotten there pretty much around 2.10 in time to see, you know, the Titanic sticking up in the air, it's about to go completely under. Now they would have been swinging out their lifeboats and trying to get people, and Experts estimate that they might have been able to get another 300 or so passengers into their lifeboats and onto the Californian, but not everyone. That just would have been impossible, but it would have changed how many people lived. Rather than 700 and some change, it would have been a little over 1,000 who were saved. 1,200 people may have still died, but 300 more people would have lived. And by not answering those distress rockets, he allowed those people to die. Like, because it wasn't that he didn't come to the aid of the Titanic. The problem was that he chose not to. And that is how he is such a sucky human being because he decided, I don't want to do
0: anything. And he just let the Titanic go. Unfortunately, the Californian didn't come to the Titanic's aid. So. New regulations had to be put into place to make sure that nothing like this ever happened again. Because of the U.S. inquiry, laws were able to be changed to make traveling the seas a much safer prospect. Ships had to slow their speed when entering areas of ice, and extra lookouts were a must at these times. Also due to the American inquiry, some of these laws and changes became international, a big one being the requirement for enough lifeboats on board to seat every single passenger with enough lifebelts for each. Loss of life due to inadequate lifeboat capacity was no longer an option. The International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea Treaty made the official change in 1914. It was also the first treaty, the first International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea Treaty, that is, to be made. Another change that was made was in regards to the rockets. Red rockets from then on equaled a ship in distress. There was absolutely no room to think about it or weasel out of it. Red meant a ship in danger. The U.S. didn't wait until 1914, though. The Radio Act of 1912 was passed. Any ships out at sea were to constantly keep an ear out for any distress signals. There was no more skipping of emergency drills, no more excuses as to why the crew had no idea about their lifeboat stations or how to man and lower a lifeboat. Ships were no longer allowed to shut down their wireless for the night. 24-hour operation was the order of the day, with an operator on duty at all times. In 1914, the International Ice Patrol was also instituted, which meant that two ships would be out and about on the most used shipping lanes so they could send out warnings about dangerous ice fields or icebergs. It still exists today, but it's uh, definitely much more high-tech than it was then. Now they use buoys connected to a satellite to send information. As a result, loss of life due to collision with an iceberg hasn't happened since the Titanic. The sinking of the Titanic
1: also caused a shift in the way classes were seen and upheld, most importantly... The awe and deference first class received. Lifeboats were no longer to be filled with the unwritten rule of women and children first, then men of first class, then second, then third. Out of all the women and children who died on the Titanic, here are the numbers. Four out of the 143 first class women died, and three of them chose to stay behind with their husbands. 15 out of the 93 second class women died, while 81 out of the 179 third class. As for the kids, every single first- and second-class child was saved, except one, Lorraine Allison. As for third-class, only 23 out of the 76 third-class children made it off the Titanic. What started with the sinking of the Titanic was solidified by the end of the First World War. The rich weren't oohed and awed over and famous simply because they were rich. Ever seen Downton Abbey? This change is shown perfectly. We 100% recommend you watch it. This whole ooing and aahing over the first class, the rich, was supported by the press because they were constantly writing stories and taking pictures of the wealthy and the elite of the New York society. And this was both, you know, when they were leaving Southampton on the Titanic, as well as when they had arrived back in New York. I mean, there was an entire article written about J.J. Astor, and then at the end, they were like, oh, Yeah, by the way, 1,500 people died also, I guess. That's kind of important.
0: Mm. But before this shift could happen, um, a lot of Titanic survivors actually came together to get a cup for Captain Rostron to show their gratitude for his quick, immediate response and for, you know, coming to their aid. And the cup was actually given to Captain Rostron by Margaret Brown herself. Now, how do we honor our victims? Every single year, a Lockheed C 130 Hercules aircraft of the International Ice Patrol actually makes their way over the Titanic wreck site on the anniversary of the sinking, and a wreath is dropped to honor the victims. Immediately following
1: the sinking, people started coming up with the most ridiculous ideas of how to raise the Titanic out of the water. And here are some of our favorites. So, one idea was to, you know, put thousands of ping pong balls into the Titanic and it would just naturally raise out of the water, apparently. Or they were going to, you know, inject the hull with Vaseline or wax because that would also make it buoyant, I guess? What?
0: Then there's another idea to just surround the entire ship in ice and then it will clearly float to the surface like ice in a glass. All right, Elsa, how the hell are you doing that? In
1: 1985, in a dual US and French exploration team up, scientist Robert Ballard and Jean Louis Michel, who was a French engineer, they worked together to find the Titanic. Now, due to bad weather, that first exploration just failed flat out. So they left. They came back in August to try again. And this time, they were successful. Now, on September 1st, they caught in the camera that was doing their nice sweep on the ocean floor an image of a Titanic boiler. They had done it. They had found it, or part of it, rather. So this was very, very, very early in the morning. They actually brought the sonar back up because they wanted to double-check something, and they realized that it was really close to the time that the Titanic went down for the last time. On the deck of the ship, they had a memorial service to remember all the victims that were lost. That same day, later on, they've slept, they've had fun. They actually found the bow of the ship, and at the time, it looked like the ship was in really, really good condition. And with all of these new things found, on September 5th, they finished the exploration, and they came back. It was just... Robert Ballard and his team the following year in July of nineteen eighty six. This time they brought with them Alvin, which was a three-person submersible that also had a cute little brother, Jason Jr., who was smaller and could get into the places that Alvin couldn't. On july thirteenth, Ballard and two of the other scientists they got into Alvin and it was a two and a half hour free fall to get to the bottom of the ocean just to give you an idea of how long this took. And then On July 15th, just two days later, they found the stern of the Titanic lying about 2,000 feet away from the bow, and Robert Ballard became the first person to ever lay eyes on the Titanic since it sank in 1912. The stern, unlike the bow, was in horrendous condition. Because of how hard it crashed into the ocean floor, the decks collapsed one on top of one another. So they continued exploring, and then on July 22nd, they started looking for the damage that the iceberg had inflicted. And this is actually how we know it wasn't like a ginormous gash in the side of the hull, that it was several
0: punctured holes. So why was this expedition so much more successful, actually quite successful, in comparison to others where they came out, did a whole bunch of stuff, didn't find anything, went home? Number one, the equipment. Technology had advanced. Plus, Alvin was actually made by the U.S. Navy, so Ballard borrowed that and was able to go down, you know, and see the Titanic for himself. Number two, big one, money. They were funded by the U.S. government. There was also the French government, the U.S. Navy, the National
1: Science Foundation, and National Geographic.
0: And then last but not least is Ballard himself, who had two PhDs and was well-versed in other scientific things, and his team of assistants who were also very scientific. Plus, he had been obsessed with the Titanic for years. Now, on one of his dives down, one of the
1: Titanic's cables actually got wrapped around Alvin. And he could have, you know, earned so much money. He could have sold it for hundreds, millions, thousands, I don't know, a lot of money. But because of how much respect he had for the Titanic and her victims, he threw the cable back into the water because he didn't want anyone to profit off of this. He wanted these people to be left alone for the Titanic to stay where it is because it was a mass grave, and he just wanted everyone to just fuck off.
0: Okay, so the real reason, though, that Ballard was able to get out there and find the Titanic, he was actually hired by the U.S. Navy to find two sunken submarines, the USS Thresher and Scorpion. They were actually two nuclear submarines. So he was like, yeah, cool. I'll totally do this thing. But when I'm done, can I please borrow your stuff so I can go look for the Titanic? That would be great. The Navy was like, all right, fine. When you're done your mission, you can go take Alvin, find the Titanic, live your dreams. He found the Titanic and it was out of curiosity, out of his obsession, out of his probably love for the stories of what happened. But it wasn't at all about greed. He didn't want anything from the Titanic. He didn't want other people to take anything from the Titanic. To him, it was a grave. It had to be left alone, undisturbed. You could look but don't touch. Unfortunately people ignored Ballard. There have been multiple expeditions since then. Things have been raised from the ocean depths, such as, you know, the china and silverware, passenger belongings. There was even a huge part of the hull that's called the big piece that was raised by the French, and I believe that is somewhere in an exhibit. James Cameron also went on an expedition to the Titanic uh, with Charles Pellegrino, who wrote the book Farewell Titanic. When he left the wreck site, James Cameron left a plaque, and per Farewell Titanic, this is what it says. The 1,500 souls lost here still speak, reminding us always that the unthinkable can happen, but for our vigilance, humility, and compassion. So we chose four of
1: the happiest survivor stories to tell you about this episode. So mine are Carl Bear and R. Norris Williams. So Carl Bear, he's a tennis player. He ended up marrying Helen Newsome, and they had four kids, three sons and one daughter. And he continued playing tennis until 1915, and he even competed with Norris Williams at one point. Um, and during his competitive circuit, he was ranked in the top 10 best U.S. players in the country. And later in life, he went into banking, he, owned, he was part of several businesses, and he died in October 15, 1949. And then there is our Norris Williams, a personal favorite of mine. So you remember him. He was one with frostbitten feet who the doctor wanted to just drop him right off there on the Carpathia. He had a full recovery and by the end of 1912, he was ranked the second best tennis player in the US. And before he got on the Titanic, he was going to be going to Harvard. You better believe it. He did go to Harvard that fall. When he was competing with Carl Baer, at one point they did win the Davis Cup. And in 1924 in the Olympics, Norris Williams won the gold medal. He did serve in World War I and he was awarded the, and I'm so sorry, please forgive my French. I stopped taking it after two years. He was awarded the Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur and the Croix de Guerre for his service. And he returned to Philadelphia, worked as a banker until his death at the age of 77 on June 2nd, 1968.
0: Then there's Edith Rosenbaum Russell, who's a complete badass. 1879 to 1975. So she still remained a fashion reporter. But when World War I broke out, she was one of the first wartime correspondents to ever exist and the first female and she was actually living in the trenches with the soldiers. When the war was over in the 1920s, she was still, you know, doing fashion reporting, still importing fashions. And since then, you know, she traveled and survived other terrible things like more car accidents or tornado. And I would call it surviving dancing with the Benito Mussolini. When Walter Lord was writing A Night to Remember, uh, she actually eventually became friends with him and even gave her a musical toy pig to him, which actually came up in the tabloids a lot as this whole thing that she had this pig that had survived the Titanic. When A Night to Remember was being made into the movie, uh, she actually gave input on the film. Edith Rosenbaum Russell died on April 4th, 1975 in a London hospital. She was 95 years old. And then we have another badass in Second Officer Charles Lighttoler. 1874 to 1952. So after the Titanic, after the inquiry, he went back to the White Star Line, but he never made captain. He was a second officer on the Titanic, but unfortunately was never able to make captain. He did serve in World War I as a full commander in the Royal Navy. Then after the war, returned to White Star and was made chief officer of the Celtic. So that was the highest rank that Lightoller was able to achieve. Eventually, he retired after serving 20 years for the liner and eventually bought his own boat. A huge sadness for Lighttoller is he lost two of his three sons in World War II. And during World War II, he was not in active service. He was not a part of the Navy. And in comes Dunkirk. So on June 1st, 1940, Toller, age 66, sailed his little boat into Dunkirk to rescue men from the beaches. On December 8th, 1952, Charles Lighttoller passed away, age 78. Before we give you our top
1: TV, film, book recommendations, we wanted to tell you a little bit about one of our favorite podcasts, Caskets and Cocktails, where Katie and her dad, Mr. Danny, tell you about all the shenanigans that happen in the funeral industry. But don't take our word for it. Here's a quick word from them Hey guys, I'm Katie Leverett. I'm Danny Faulkner. I'm her daddy. And welcome to Caskets and Cocktails.
0: I've been in the cemetery business for over 35 years.
1: That's right. And this podcast is all about Mr. Danny's hilarious
0: and crazy stories that happened to him. Everything that happens, happens in a cemetery. So guys, go ahead and hit subscribe because... We'll be the last ones to let you down. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the time has come. We are saying goodbye to the Titanic in this episode. We do have some recommendations for you. Um, My favorite book that we read, one of them anyway, because I read a lot, was Gilded Lives, Fatal Voyage, The Titanic's First Class Passengers and Their World by Hugh Brewster. It is really well written. It's definitely not dry at all. And it gives you a really interesting look at the first class passengers. But he does also focus on the first class in relation to second and third and really gives you a big rounded picture of that. And then my favorite
1: book that we read, and this is, like, like legit, out of everything we read, this is my ultimate favorite book, and that was The Other Side of the Night, The Carpathia, The Californian, and The Night the Titanic Was Lost, and that is by Daniel Allen Butler, and it is such a great book because it does tell you the story of the Titanic, but it does so in a chronological way in terms of what's happening on the Californian. What's happening with the Carpathia? Let's go back to the Titanic and this is what they're going through. So it gives you such a well-rounded view of the entire night from every perspective possible.
0: Yeah, and uh, we've discussed this multiple times already, but we definitely think if anyone is out there listening, if you're going to make another Titanic movie, make it based off of the other side of the night. It's just that good. And speaking of movies and TV, uh, definitely watch the 1997 Titanic film by James Cameron. If you haven't yet, if the love story turns you off, I'm sorry, try to ignore that the best you can, but it is really well done. Um, James Cameron had a really great attention for detail to the point where if you've ever seen an image of Captain Smith, the actor who plays him... Looks eerily similar.
1: I mean, there's that, and then there's also, like, just from the history we've been telling you about in these last few episodes, so many things align. You can see the inspiration for several characters, such as Jack, such as Rose, and he just brought everything together so well.
0: Also, speaking of the 1997 Titanic film, we are going to have our first outlandish watch party on Saturday, April 13th, 12 o'clock noon Eastern Time. All right, so join us on April 13th at noon, where we will be live-tweeting as we watch James Cameron's Titanic. That done. For TV, we also recommend Titanic Blood and Steel. It was a 12-episode miniseries that was made. I'll be honest, the first time I watched it, the first episode, I was like, mm, I don't know about this, but... You know, by the time we watched the second episode, I was really, really into it. It's a really good series. Uh, Take it with many, many grains of salt because it was kind of one of those things, like, inspired by the history of the building of the Titanic. And then they made a series about it. Now, some of its stuff is really interesting. They actually show you how the work is going on on the shipbuilding yard and, like, stuff about the rivets. But when it comes to the actual characters, they minimize Thomas Andrews' role. I don't know why. So they can make room for their own original character. But regardless of all of that, it is really good. There are other um, miniseries and Titanic things that you could watch, like A Night to Remember, which is based off of Walter Lord's book. Um, there's also a miniseries with Catherine Zeta-Jones that you can watch, which we haven't yet, but it's definitely on our list. And there are a ton of documentaries out there that you can find on YouTube, Public Library, Amazon Prime, so on and so forth. Hey guys, thanks so
1: much for hanging out with us on this episode of the Dear World Love History podcast.
0: Make sure you tune in for our next episode where we will meet up in 16th century Scotland. Make sure you
1: leave us a review on iTunes, let us know what you think, and follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians.
0: And once again, tune in to Twitter, April 13th, 12 o'clock, Eastern, Outlandish Watch Party. Historians out.